Exercises. My name is Rachel Amaday. I'm so glad that you are here with me. You guys, I know it's been a while since I've done an interview, but fear not. I have reconnected with some folks lately that I know want to come and be interviewed. I'm excited to get those interviews going and get them out to you guys so you can just hear another voice. Um, and if you haven't already checked out the uh, video podcast on YouTube or my podcast with people like Dr. Douglas Hamp, um, and Colleen James and many others, I think you'll find them fascinating and wonderful interviews. So go back, find those. But I am doing something today that I have promised so many people I would do, and I have just not been able to put it together. So, so many people have asked me to put my book into an audiobook form. And frankly, to do that in totality, in whole, and do a really good job, make sure it's quiet enough, make sure it's all the things that you know you really want an audiobook to be, figure out how to put together, where to put it up. I just haven't had the time. But you know, I've thought, why don't I use this podcast as an opportunity to give you guys chapter by chapter the book, and then you can come in here and listen to it as your heart desires. What's great about my book is each chapter is kind of its own little essay. You don't need to read it from front to back. Um, so if you want to just skip around in chapters, if you want to just hear one, you know, uh, one of my perspectives on one issue, you can pick a chapter and read through the book. I do recommend that you read the um, defining terms chapter, the very first chapter, and maybe the intro of the book. Um, I, and I'll eventually podcast those maybe as well. But those will just give you an idea of how I'm using some of the terminology in the book and why I wrote it and what is the point. Um, and just to let you guys know, really, the point is about love. We have two loves, loving God and loving others. And that love that we are supposed to have has been redefined, has been warped, has been twisted. We, we in fact, don't seem to, as a society, have a definition of what love is at all. And this has caused us to break apart and fall apart, not only as believers, but just as a culture. What does it mean to love? Is love a feeling? Is love a verb? That sort of thing. I believe wholeheartedly that we are supposed to understand what love means from God's perspective. And you can find those definitions in the Bible. And without them, we have been lost. Not to mention, it is because of a lack of definition of what it means to love God and love others, that we have tens of thousands of Christian denominations, that we have Roman Catholicism, that we have all these separations and divisions, which is from the enemy, right? God wanted us to be one. We know this because Yeshua prayed this for his people. And so we are supposed to be one with Christ. We are supposed to have the mind of Christ. And in that, we are supposed to be one with our brothers and sisters. But we have lost that. So I wrote this book to help give better definitions of what love means, what God is really doing in scripture. You know, one of the first chapters I start with is about family. Everything in the Bible is about family. And if you don't understand God's version of a family, you're never going to get what's going on in scripture, right? It's about a wedding. It's about a marriage. It's about a family. It's about how you raise children. It's about 
that. And this is why the core, the foundational unit of society is a family. And, um, and it's simple, right? And God wants to bring his family back together. Uh, in the meantime, I think we've been doing a pretty poor job of loving one another as a family. Uh, all of that aside, today, I wanted to read to you from my book, the chapter on worship chapter 10. And it's really because I've been discussing worship a lot lately with a lot of people um, in my church work, as well as just um, in in my, you know, when people ask about what I do, you know, you're a worship director, what does that mean, right? Um, is this really just about music? And why have we limited it to that? So I'm going to start with you here. This is not a long chapter, but I really enjoyed writing it as someone who has led praise for a very long time in churches. I dug into this pretty deeply. I think you'll get something out of it. Um, and I think it might help you understand the overall aspect of worship for the believer. Let's begin. Chapter 10, Worship. In my many years leading worship, I cannot recall a year where I've been contacted by so many believers who say they feel called back to scripture, to repentance, and to praise. It's a combination that seems to embody true worship. In my circles, this observable move of the Holy Spirit inspired me to dive deeper into my roots as a worship leader. Often obfuscated, the true meaning of worship lies hidden beneath a lazy veneer of music. The first of the Ten Commandments insists that we love the Lord and worship Him only. But without definition, the church is left to vaguely describe worship as the short and usually very generic musical sessions happening at the beginning or ending of weekly church services. The depth of the terminology is missing. It's time to rediscover its true meaning. From Abel to Yeshua, scripture is filled with moments of worship before the Lord, tying together thousands of years of adoration of God. True worshipers throughout scripture connect in both attitude and action. These leaders and their offerings beautifully intertwine with the work and message of the Messiah. But to truly see and understand this connection, we must rethink our views on worship. The first time the word for worship appears in Scripture is in Genesis 18.2. The Hebrew word shakah is used as Abraham is approached by three people outside his home. He goes out to them and bows low. This first mention and definition tells us what worship truly embodies, humble action in the presence of a holy God. It is submission and acts of service towards a being we recognize as above us. It is bowing, lowering, and submitting. Later, Abraham's action of taking Isaac to be sacrificed, he also calls shakah. In this way, worship is not just about musicianship. Rather, it is an attitude of humble recognition of God, of bowing low and lifting up. It is about obedience and allegiance. A wonderful teacher, Rico Cortez, often emphasizes that worship really is worthship. What worth do we bring to the Lord and his kingdom? What a value are we offering? In our oath and pledge to him, we are called to offer everything. So, how does music fit in? Looking to scripture, we discover some important music-filled inspiration. Interestingly, we even find Jesus with his disciples singing. Matthew 26, 30 says this, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. End quote. The word for hymn is from the Greek hymneo and refers to what the Jews called the great Hallel, which comes from Psalms 113 to 118 and Psalm 136. Not surprisingly, they called upon David, 
our best guess is the writer here, the great songwriter and psalmist to provide their worship music. While many psalms were not necessarily written by David, over half were, as far as we can tell. I consider David the go-to mentor and model for worship leadership. He wrote many of the psalms, large odes dedicated to praise of the Lord, and he joyfully praised publicly with song and dance. He was an action-oriented worshiper. Not fearing Goliath, nor shying away from battle, he understood worship is rooted in obedience. He desired to build the temple for God, although it was his son that did so. He had a true heart to obey, glorify, and love the Lord. As well as practice what that looked like in his life and his writings. David also loved God's laws and obsessed over them throughout the Psalms. His love of God's law meant that David loved the words Moses wrote down. He was inspired and in submission to the word that God himself, through Moses, had given to Israel. And interestingly enough, in the Exodus story, we find the first corporate praise moment recorded in Scripture. On the road to receiving the gift of God's Torah at Mount Sinai, Moses' sister Miriam leads the nation of Israel in spontaneous song. This first song of the biblical church is sung by the assembly and mixed multitude of God's people considered by many to be the first church, which had just been delivered out of Egypt. After salvation, they spontaneously sang out, proclaiming the story of deliverance. Then Moses' sister Miriam grabbed a tambourine and led them in musical praise and dance. This moment remains a testimony to the beauty and power of music as an expression of gratitude and a powerful memory of God's salvation, not to mention evidence to advocate for female congregational leadership— Israel praised after they were saved by the grace of God from trial or Egypt. Modern music follows this cue. As our praise often highlights salvation, this moment in scripture, while more spontaneous and seemingly more miraculous, is the foundation and definition of the heart of worship throughout music today. But there are aspects of this moment and the people involved that are worth digging into further. What qualities does Moses bear that may be important to worshipfulness? Moses is considered by the Bible to be the most humble man in history, according to Numbers 12.3. Moses wrote down God's laws. Moses was the only man to meet with God face to face, according to Deuteronomy 34.10. These are important ties to another previously mentioned star worship leader in scripture, King David. Writer of the Psalms, player of the lyre, and therapist to King Saul, David must have been one heck of a creative talent, and his work remains heavily referenced to this day. Psalms is filled with treasures for all generations. Hidden in this amazing collection of songs are secrets to a worshipful heart. Here are a few of those secrets. Number one, devotion to and love for God's laws. In David's day, the word included only the first five books of the Bible and probably some of Judges. David cannot speak highly enough about the law of God and its perfection. Take Psalm 119, 97 to 104 as one example. I quote, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. End quote. Number two, honesty. Whether he's asking for God's protection, crying out in desperation, or praising with all his heart, David is frank. He does not try to hide behind overwrought verbiage or hedging. Number three, persistent attention to God's details. Psalm 119 has one section dedicated to each of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet or Aleph bet. 
Each letter in the Hebrew alphabet has numerical and ideological meanings attached, making each section of David's song that much more interesting to ponder. Number four, vision. David remembers to keep the main thing front and center. Praise to God for his attributes. This vision is founded in his relationship with God. His walk with the Heavenly Father becomes evident when he defeats Goliath. We will visit this later. In short, King David loved the laws of God, which Moses had recorded. Moses was humble, and biblical worship requires humility or bowing low. David exalted God above himself, recognizing his need for salvation. Humility flows from a worshipful heart. Moses saw God's face. David sought God's face. In Psalm 105.4, David says, Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. End quote. The pursuit of God makes for an honest worshiper. Finding God, even when he shatters our preconceived notions, proves our belief that he is the great I am, and that, well, I am not. David understood that in the writings of Moses, he would find the very heart of Yeshua. When we pursue God's ways, we seek his face. Justice, mercy, salvation, victory, authority, and praise are all key themes of David's writings as well as those of Moses, directing us to the position of a worshipful heart. God and his things are above all. God is a king with a kingdom and terms for that kingdom that David loved. He said yes to them just as the nation of Israel did in the desert at Mount Sinai under Moses' leadership. In a climate becoming increasingly violent, hyperbolic, deceitful, and narcissistic, is there anything more needed than a humble return to God's ways as part of our worship? This is echoed in the acts of worship that led to repentance, humility, and restoration in Scripture. In Nehemiah 8, Ezra the scribe read the law to the people of Israel. As he did this, verse 6 records that the people lifted their hands and bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The law was then explained to the people. The response to understanding was followed by a renewal to keep God's laws, and the people celebrated and rejoiced. They repeated these humble actions again in chapter 9. Praising and bowing as parts of worship have the power to lead us to truth, gratitude, obedience, and change. Just as David pondered and admired God's law as a part of his act of worship, and just as Moses and Miriam led a congregation in praise after experiencing salvation, we too are called to return to truth and obedience with a heart of thanks and humility. God desires to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. True worship, the type we need today, does not shun the realities of Scripture or the gospel of Yeshua. We are to be salt and light. Matthew five thirteen to 16 we are to preserve the kingdom for the king. The king came to restore himself and his things to us by bowing, standing, and walking with the king according to his righteousness. We become the salt and light. Matthew 6.33 says this, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. End quote. Next section, David bowing, standing, and walking. My dear Uncle Mark brought a beautiful concept to my son's 13th birthday celebration, and I have pondered it time and again ever since. He shared that each day we are to have three positions before the Lord. We are to bow to Him, stand by and for Him, and walk with Him. These three positions reflect engagement throughout each portion of our days. There is not a moment where we are outside of God's purview, and each moment in the day is an opportunity to reflect relationship with the Creator. 
Can we see these positions through the lens of worship? Does Scripture support these positions before the Lord? And if so, how would that change our behavior? Romans 12, 1-2 states this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, end quote. As previously discussed, obedience and worship are interconnected. The physical aspect of our position before the Lord cannot be ignored. It is through our bodily acts of righteousness and our bowing, walking, and standing that we are living sacrifices to our God. King David's story illuminates these positions. He understood that obedience was pertinent as a worship leader, and that is why he obsessed over it in his writings and songs. He consistently esteems God's laws as perfect, as light, and as life. We know David is referencing the first five books of the Bible because those, again, were the only biblical books other than Judges that had been written at the time David was writing. David loved God's ways. The book of Psalms begins with him saying, I quote, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, nor stands in the way of sinners. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law, does he meditate day and night, end quote. In the very first psalm, we see bowing, standing, and walking, Uncle Mark's three positions. We're not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but rather in the counsel of the godly, in the counsel of Christ. We are not to sit in the seat of scoffers, but to be laid low before the wisdom of the Almighty. We're not to stand in the way of sinners, but to stand in righteousness for the ways of our King. Here at the very beginning of Psalms, worship is defined within what my uncle has also found to be true. We are first told where not to be, and then where we as worshipers belong. David teaches us to delight in the law, which we know is Christ himself. David understood my uncle's three concepts. So let's talk about them. Next section, number one, bowing to God. I think about bowing as the idea of pledging allegiance. We've given our oath to something we believe is greater than we are and handed our hearts over to what we acknowledge as a greater king and kingdom. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm. It contains 22 sections, each one dedicated to one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. One section I'd like to highlight here is the 14th section headed by the Hebrew letter Nun. Psalms 119, 105-106 reads this, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws, end quote. The noon's shape or orthography has an underlying meaning. The ancient Hebrew letter noon has a bent over structure, bent over and then straightened out again. The letter takes a journey of humility and ends upright. It portrays the story of one who is humble before God who will stand upright in the final day. David speaks in this noon section as having taken an oath, pledging allegiance not to himself or an earthly country, but instead to following the righteous laws of God. This commitment certainly requires humility. We have to bow. We have to die to ourselves. We put ourselves on the altar so that we die and Yeshua can live in us. One of the greatest difficulties in teaching those who have fallen away from the faith or those who grew up in church but who do not have a relationship with Christ 
is their insistence on judging God's actions in Scripture. Many come to God demanding that He behave as they would wish, forgetting that to come to God without humility will only lead to frustration. The Bible tells us that God is not like us. His thoughts, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His righteous decisions and actions may not align with our human understanding or preferences. For all of David's mistakes and sins, he is wise enough to recognize that God is holy, set apart, unique, and uncompromising. If we come to God to judge him, what can be learned? Nothing. We've already decided our ideas are better than the God of the universes. We have set ourselves in God's seat. We've become like Lucifer. This position will not end well for us. Humility is a position to take before the Lord to discover blessing and wisdom. The noon represents this beautifully. Noon also relates to life. In Aramaic, noon means fish. Again, the shape of this letter early on looked kind of like a fish or something swimming. Fish and life were interlinked for the Hebrew people of the BC era. If you looked into a river and saw fish, you saw the hope of a future. Fish were a way of life and meant sustenance and survival. Food and water were everything. If there's life in the water, the water is healthy. The river is running. There's a continual cycle that ensures future generations. Fish, bread, water, these are particularly important for the society of David's time and are scripturally laden with meaning. The letter noon even goes beyond just these first meanings. In scripture, sometimes the letter noon is turned backwards or inverted. When this happens, it connotes life from the dead. Resurrection. Miraculous life that once had no hope, now filled with eternity. David made an oath. He bowed before a king and the king's precepts, and in this he saw life, even life from the dead. There's eternity about the king we bow to and his kingdom. This is why we humble ourselves. This is the reason we are bent. It is for a king with the ultimate power even to bring life from the dead, a power so great that eternity lies in its catch. To become godly fishers of men, we must become bearers of resurrected life, lamps with the light of life burning in us. David understood that in order to receive life, in the end, one had to bow to the king of all. He knew that dying to oneself meant resurrection, eternal life, newness, and the promises of God fulfilled. Next section, standing with God and for God. Psalms 40. The numbers 4 and 40 bear significant meaning throughout Scripture. Yeshua is nearby when these numbers show up. He arrived in human form in the fourth millennia, spent 40 days fasting in the desert, 40 days of rain which cleansed the earth. The fourth word of the Hebrew Bible is the Aleph Tav. Yeshua is the fourth man in the book of Daniel's fiery furnace. The amazing story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were put into a furnace because they would not bow down to an image of King Nebuchadnezzar. The king looks in and sees a fourth person in the furnace. There are four Gospels. Four and forty are important, so Psalms 40 likely has something to tell us. By God's leading, I found it is right in the theme of standing with and for our Savior. Psalms 40. Let's start at verse 6. Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced, end quote. So many times I have read through Psalms 40, verse 6, and not understood this piercing David references. David is describing what Paul does later when he talks about being a bondservant of Christ. This piercing was part of the system of servanthood. The Old Testament often uses the term slave here. 
The system in place provided for a way out of debt for those who found themselves in trouble financially or criminally and were without a route to pay someone back. It was also a system for those who owed a debt to society. You would become a servant of a master or family, and every seven years the debtors were freed and debt was canceled. However, if the servant loved their master or wanted to stay for some reason, perhaps he's married another servant who is staying, etc., this person could decide to become a bond servant. The process for becoming a bond servant was public and slightly painful. The servant was taken to the gates of the city by their boss. At the gate, for all to see, the master would drive an awl through the ear of the servant. Now, everywhere that servant went, there was physical evidence that he belonged to someone and had pledged his life to a master. He had chosen servanthood instead of freedom. It was by choice. David says here that he's become a bond servant to God. He's willing to make it obvious in the public square. Anyone that sees him will know who he belongs to. He goes on in verses 8 through 10 to say this, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, as you know, O Lord. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth from the great assembly, end quote. David does not hide God's light under a bushel. He is interested in keeping things salty. He knows his worthship is tied to standing for the kingdom principles he has taken an oath to love and follow. He stands with God and for God in public and on purpose. His commitment is bold, unwavering, and unapologetic. Much like the American church. Just kidding. Bold, unapologetic, unconcerned about judgment, fearless, brave. These words are often foreign in a mess of godless, hopeless, fearful, wavering, quivering church compromises. How many times have I been told that the church needs to seem kind and merciful, so we must stay silent on anything that feels judgmental or legalistic? Either they haven't thought that one through or they are liars. Where's the kindness for the preborn? Where's the kindness for the sexually trafficked? Where's the kindness for the children of divorce? Where's the mercy for the porn addict? Where is the mercy for those stuck in sin? In this author's view, kindness and mercy do not entail wholesale tolerance of the great evils of our day. Mercy is helping people to become free from bondage. Mercy is not ignoring sin. Mercy is the route to defeating it. King David stands in judgment upon our church leadership, calling upon them to boldly preach eternal life and hope and teaching them to obey all that God has commanded, which will free people from sin. The new life in Christ is not frail. It does not need to bow before sin as if that very sin has not already been conquered. What weakness we cast upon the cross when we daily forget what it actually freed us from. We weaken the power of the gospel when we tolerate evil in our communities. We use poor doctrine and evil philosophies in our worship, and we call God a liar when we say that preaching against sin is not merciful. What mercy is there that does not include freedom from sin? What mercy is there that does not set the captive free from the hands of destruction? What mercy is there that is not bent on bringing heaven to earth and destroying the grasp of hell? What mercy are we preaching? What love? Does a father leave his children to the gutter? The father the American church preaches about is too often a wicked one, one who appeases the enemy as the evil of sin continues to rip apart and wreck the souls of the attendees. 
a father who leaves the cage with the door closed, but promises eternal life once that body has died, a father who would rather avoid the difficulty of discussing the dirty clothing of his kids. Why wash when you can stay filthy and be told you don't stink? The fabled emperor's clothes are nothing compared to the unwashed masses the church calls clean. We have denied the power of the gospel to bring people into righteousness, and we have tolerated the wickedness of our culture to our own destruction. The church preaches a weak father, and out of it, we respond in weak worship. But it tickles the ears to tell people God loves them without ever encroaching on that terribly offensive idea of repentance. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, and the path to getting and keeping butts and bucks in church pews is to make people feel good in their cages. Standing with and for God means we worship the true Father in all that we say and do. To represent His household, we do not fall for the earthly versions of mercy. We adjust our walk to be closer with the Lord so that we may preach obedience without hypocrisy, thereby avoiding the plank in our own eye problem. Stop sinning, then teach others to do the same. It is simple yet hard but possible through our Savior stand for the truth so that others may experience the merciful freedom of our Savior and the beauty of bringing heaven to earth. If worship does not include humble submission to the terms of God's kingdom, it is not worship of God. Perhaps we need to begin asking who we worship when we demand to live life on our own terms and attend church without reproach. Next section, walking with God. Here I must once again discuss the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. Yes, this story is one of my favorites. There is young David, who's already killed a lion and a bear with his own hands. David decrying Israel's tolerance of Goliath in their midst, fearlessly asking why they aren't fighting Goliath and defeating their enemy. The giant Goliath stands opposed to Israel, mocking both the nation and its God. In fact, the Bible tells us that for 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand, end quote. 40. There's that number again. This will come up later. David knows exactly how to defeat this giant and win the battle. It is not with armor of men that Goliath will be defeated. David rejects Saul's armor. He instead takes his shepherd's staff in hand. In 1 Samuel 17:40, we are reminded that David is a shepherd. The verse about his weapons of choice begins with a simple symbol. He takes care of sheep. It is a staff that we see as we imagine this young man preparing to do the impossible. A staff that gently leads and rescues and helps him to walk. This staff defines his role, his place in the world, and his preparation for such a moment. The shepherd then goes to living water, a river, and draws out five smooth stones. Stones that have been baptized, stones that have been worn, that have stood the test of time and that have been immersed in life itself. We see here he chooses five stones, the number correlating with the Torah, and also a number that, in Hebrew, represents grace. David pulls God's word and grace from the waters to carry with him into battle. He knew it would be by God's own mouth, by God's design, that Goliath would fall. The shepherd carries with him the word of God from living waters to defend the sheep against the enemy. Can you see Christ? It is so obvious, and yet we have so often missed this. And so important for us, David carries God's law with him to defeat his enemy. He calls Goliath uncircumcised, noting that Goliath represents sin, evil, a heart turned against God's ways, and an ideology that stands against what David calls the armies of the living God. 
So, David takes with him what is alive and powerful. He takes God to battle with him. Walking with God means we carry his things with us into every battle, into every meeting, into every situation. We don't go without God. We should not go without his word. We are confident that there is life in God's word. David is not the only one who defeats an enemy this way. Yeshua does the same. In Matthew 3, Yeshua is baptized by John. As he is taken out of the water, God's voice speaks audibly, saying, This is my son, with whom I am well pleased. After Yeshua is baptized and drawn out of the water, he is led into the desert for 40 days and nights. Yeshua, the living, breathing word of God, is baptized and then immediately approved of by God. And next, as we will see, Jesus is led into battle to contend with a spiritual giant, a spiritual enemy. As he is fasting in the desert, Satan comes to him with three temptations. Yeshua responds with quotes from the Torah. In reply to Satan's first temptation to make stone into bread, Yeshua quotes Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. End quote. He speaks about the life in the word of God. It is our sustenance and reason for being. Let's back up to give this verse fuller context and understand why Yeshua used it. From Deuteronomy 8, verses 1-18. through 18. Every commandment which I command you today you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these forty years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you." next section of scripture here says, Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today, lest, when you have eaten and are full, and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness, in which were fiery serpents and scorpions, and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, and that he might test you, to do you good in the end." Then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods, 
and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish, because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. End quote. This section of scripture is about the wilderness. 40 years in the desert, 40 long days in which Goliath thought he would win, 40 moments of testing and trial, fear and difficulty. Yeshua is reliving what his ancestors did. Israel did not always do it well. They complained, they groaned, they wasted time due to sin. In contrast, Yeshua does the desert perfectly. When the tempter comes to him, he uses his own words written in the Torah to rebuff the advances of evil. He perfectly lives out the 40 days of desert, the lack and the humility as a sign to us. And he quotes a section of scripture pointedly telling us that we are no longer to rely on our own power to obey the Lord. Instead, it is through a heart position that we will not forget the Lord. We are to remember his ways and his covenant and live by those life-giving words. The bread of God is his law. It is life. For the next temptation, Satan tells Yeshua to throw himself off the temple that the angels may catch him. Yeshua replies, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So where's that written? Also in Deuteronomy chapter six, it says this, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his provisions and his statutes, which he has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord so that it may go well for you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers by driving out all your enemies from you as the Lord has spoken. End quote. Do not test God. Stay faithful and you can take possession of the good land, the promised land, eternity. Yeshua knows because of his word that he must diligently keep to God's laws and make a way for us to enter into the promised land, his eternity. By obedience, enemies flee, and the follower of God can possess their rightful property. Yeshua knew how to make Satan flee. David knew how to defeat Goliath. It is by the Torah, by righteousness, that evil must flee. Let's see if the third test bears this out. As a final resort, Satan offers Yeshua an earthly kingdom. Odd, truly, how, how can he do this? But this question is for another time. Yeshua responds, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. End quote. This is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 6.13, just before the verses previously mentioned regarding the second test of Satan. Yeshua takes the Torah, smooth, sure, foundational, hardened, battle-worn, immersed in life, and he sends Satan away with those words. Shot from his mouth, these hardened weapons quickly did their work. King David understood and performed with God's laws in mind. Yeshua filled this law full of meaning, rebuffing the spiritual Goliath. The Torah is more than words. It is the foundation of truth, even to this moment. When we take God's word into our lives, we carry Christ, the bread of life, with us. We cannot help but see, but see these extraordinary symbols with Moses as well, the one who wrote the Torah from the mouth of God. Moses' name was Moshe, which means waters. Moses was pulled from the waters as a baby. This baptism ensured that he survived the evil decree of Pharaoh to kill all the baby boys of his day. Through water, his life was saved. As the nation of Israel left Egypt, freed from the tribulation and bondage of trial, it walked through the Reed Sea, between the waters. It was baptized into the life God desired for it to find. The same waters punished the Egyptian army and defeated it. The same waters that brought life to Israel defeated Israel's enemies. 
This baptism led to the covenant at Mount Sinai, where God gave his Torah to his people. The laws of God were given after salvation and baptism. The stone the law was written on contained both freedom and judgment. Just as the stones David pulled from the river freed Israel and judged the Philistines, the waters of the Reed Sea freed Israel and judged Egypt. So God's law in Yeshua frees God's people and judges those outside of his redemption, just as Paul describes. We are given the right to conquer sin through sacrifice of Yeshua. We are made new and able to live in righteousness. Without this gift, the law is a judge. It only shows us our separation and with it death. If we are not in Yeshua, we become like Goliath or the Egyptians. We are unable to enact the miracles of God. We are in opposition to his kingdom. Yet through Christ, the waters of life from which God's kingdom is pulled, baptizes and releases us. We are allowed to abide in God's truth and love and adore his kingdom principles. We are Israel freed from Egypt. We are David defeating Goliath. We are in Yeshua conquering death. How fascinating that water and blood came from Yeshua's side as he was pierced on the cross. The blood was the covering that brought Yovel or Jubilee, which meant freedom for slaves in the Hebrew nation throughout the Old Testament. Jubilee was a commanded time where all debt was released and freedom was proclaimed and granted. Additionally, land was returned to the original owners. Yeshua's blood is restoration to fullness of life, and the water is baptism. We are freed from sin, from Egypt, from Goliath, restored to our destiny in Yeshua, and baptized into new life. We are able to defeat Egypt, to defeat Goliath, to defeat sin, to conquer death. Guys, today I'm going to stop here. There is more of this chapter that I will read and get out to you in the next few days, hopefully, but hopefully you've enjoyed some of that. It is one of my favorite chapters because it's one of those chapters where God started putting the stories in scripture together for me as these pictures of what Yeshua was going to do for us on our behalf. And I just find that consistency throughout scripture time and time and time again the same stories the cyclical nature of god's days and his ways and how each story gives us a new dimension to what god is doing and so by the time you get through what yeshua has done and through revelation you have this multi-dimensional picture that is so beautiful. And so um, I hope you've enjoyed that today. I will be back in the next week or so to bring you the rest of this chapter. May you be blessed till next.